Welcome to the Mixed Bag Podcast. My aim is to inform, inspire and amuse. I hope you enjoy listening and please consider subscribing for more delicious content. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Claire Thompson. Claire received her PhD in pharmacy from the University of Nottingham and has had some very interesting roles in science and pharmaceuticals over the last 15 years. She's got various honorary lecturer positions, including at the University College of London and the University of Cambridge and Nottingham. She's currently the CEO of Agility Life Sciences. She's an award-winning pharmaceutical scientist, strategist and storyteller with 15 years experience in developing pharmaceutical products and is often invited to speak at conferences and biotech gatherings. In today's conversation, we discussed women in science, a little bit of football, haircuts, stilettos and how women are impacted in leadership positions. Enjoy. Good evening, listeners. Good afternoon. Good morning. Welcome to The Mixed Bag. We have a fantastic guest with us today who I was introduced through, I'm not going to say a mutual friend, but someone who went to a talk where Claire was presenting and was extremely impressed, not only by the content of the talk, but by the attire and the personality of Claire. So welcome, Claire. The mixed bag today, we're going to talk about a multitude of things. I think your role, a CEO, and we've just been chatting there a little bit about some football knowledge and captaincies, which I think we'll try and get in, but also women in science and the various topics surrounding that. So obviously a little bit of an introduction from you would be great. And then we'll kick fire into some conversational questions. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. And it's great to hear that your friend was intrigued, not in just what I was saying, but I think my hair and my shoes. I find that people tend to remember my hair and my shoes and not necessarily my name. I'm absolutely fine with that. They're like, you know Claire, don't you? No, no. She looks like a lit match in fabulous shoes. Oh, I do know Claire. Yeah, so I'm grabbing that. It's a, it's a, yeah, the hair is a bit bonkers. And if you can see the, some of the collection of my shoes behind me. Bit about me, originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland. You can still hear a little bit of the accent. I've been away from home a long time. Went to Scotland to St Andrews to do my undergraduate degree. I've always been a geek. I've always been interested in science. So then came to England, went to Nottingham. Been in England ever since, really. Got into the pharmaceutical industries. Been in the industry in large, small, virtual, and now my own company for, oh my goodness, I think it's 20 years. How old does that make me feel? Looking good with that haircut, though. You know? <laughs> yeah, you see, it's, it's the, the, it's the hair young. and the shoes that you can see behind me that really do distract yeah. from how tired I look. I think they need to know that the work that's done on the hair in the morning, it looks like it's been done a lot, but <laughs> I'm sure you've got it done well. Um, it's tremendous. Um, I'll, I'll tell you some of the secrets about it, if you like. We'll do that offline. We don't want everyone knowing what's happening here. <laughs> I always start off with this question and I think I like it because I had an influential teacher at school. Did you have an influential teacher you remember from school that led you down biochemistry, science? Was it something that naturally came to you? So I've always been interested in science and I think 
that's most memorable for me at Bite Science when I was younger was watching the Royal Institution Christmas lectures. And I watched them with my mum and dad and with my brother and sister when we were young. And they're kind of pitched at kids who are between, I don't know, maybe about seven and 12 years old. But I thought watching them, they're fabulous. So I watched them with my daughter. The other day we caught up on those and they were talking about infections and COVID and how vaccines work. It's intriguing and it's so visual. So, you know, it communicates the science with us that I'm really passionate about. But in terms of a school teacher, I had a, I had a couple. One of them that really sticks out for me was a lady called Mrs McCormick and she was my maths teacher. So, yeah, you know, maths mm. is part of the science. Geekiness. And she taught us maths and further maths and mechanics and hardcore dull stuff whenever I'm that old that we didn't have laptops so everything on a blackboard and you had to take copious notes and she made it fun and and I just always remember her with a smile on her face but it's on tv again you know because I'm passionate about talking about science and talking about medicines how they work what are the risks of taking things that claim to be medicines but aren't medicines? So I've done a, a few bits on the BBC and Channel 4 and a bit on ITV News. And she saw one of the things that I did for the news. She managed to track down my email address and she sent me an email. Oh, no way. In, oh, my God, I was in floods of tears. Just said, uh, hi, Claire, it's, um, it's Francis McCormick. And, and oh. me, I was one of your teachers at Belfast High School of just seen you on the news and want to let you know that you're really proud of you and you know you were always a fabulous people oh sorry how good did that make you sent feel? it to my mum i've still got i'm you know I'm, I'm shaking just thinking about it and it's just really it's, it's, oh, that's won- awesome. it's wonderful that she had such an impact on me and clearly mm. i've done something that makes her remember me as well i had bad hair then i didn't have the ridiculous hair that what? <laughs> yeah i know i know no, hopefully there's no photographs. We won't be releasing any pictures of that, listeners. <laughs> we've got Please. we've got to maintain the persona. Uh, absolutely, yes. A tiny semblance of street cred. And I had a great chemistry teacher as well who told us mm. about, you know, how he worked for a chemicals company and there were all, yeah, all sorts of mishaps and you know, how he mm. smelt something that he shouldn't have smelt and then he collapsed. And yeah, you know, <laughs> stuff that, yeah, yeah. oh my God, it would just make me have a heart attack now if it happened in one of my labs but yeah he was hilarious and really engaging so I think the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures started it for me also watching Quincy on the telly and him solving crimes it's just brilliant you know what you can do with science and just having the teachers who could keep you enthused and engaged and were really interested in it and you just can't beat it you can't fake it either I mean teachers of a hell of a job, especially at the minute where they're trying to, you know, teach kids smaller groups or larger class sizes to fit them in or teach them online. Oh my word, what a job. They all deserve much more money and medals and, and everything that they can be given. It's not a job that I could ever do. It's phenomenal. If most of us could be teachers, I think we'd find out how difficult a job it is. So yeah. a shout out to all the teachers out there. It sounds like with Quincy and biochemistry, you might have gone down the forensic science path. When did you become serious about your science career, not just the science? And when did you know this is something that you wanted to pursue kind of professionally or, or do something involved with not just learning and actually turning into a money earning career? I think I was interested in medicines from a reasonably early age. My grandmother died when I was 15, she had breast cancer struggle 
quite a number of years. And I think that's probably where a lot of us stem from. I wanted to help people. I wanted to make healthier, longer, happier lives. Hospital work and surgery wasn't for mm. me. I I don't know who, but whether this is the cause of it. I had my appendix out when I was, I think, about 14. I had a cannula put into my wrist for them to put the drip in and the blood out of it. And I remember just fainting, whether I think it was the pressure on my wrist. And even now, if I see somebody on telly who's getting a drip in their arm, I lose the feeling in my hand. So, yeah, that was medicine out for me. You know, not great with blood, not great with uh, <laughs> with seeing needles going into people's arms. So, yeah, that wasn't good for me. And the forensic science piece when I was in my undergraduate degree at St Andrews, someone from the... Strathclyde police came in to talk about forensic science and I remember going oh this will be brilliant and going along to the lecture and it was all fabulous until they showed a crime scene picture and I don't know what was more horrific lime green and brown wallpaper and curtains or blood that was splattered across everywhere and then I thought Mm. no I can't do that job either so I still had the passion for the science and for medicines and for understanding what happens and causes diseases I think I had the choice of two PhDs and I picked the one that was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. Um, once okay. I was there, I was kind of, pardon the pun, mm-hmm. on drugs. That was it. I was kind of launched into that as a passion and an industry that I wanted to be involved in. And you decided after getting a PhD in pharmacy um, from Nottingham, you did your postdoc in a role with a rather large pharmaceutical company pretty well known at the moment in sandwich in their head office right i did yeah so my phd was actually sponsored by smith klein beecham which is now was it the old smith klein beecham oh yeah in ye olden times i'm that old yeah so (laughs) i went to the enemy so i went to pfizer i did my postdoc at at pfizer and it was brilliant because it was a postdoc so research focus in it but it was within a pharmaceutical company so I got I had a foot in both camps I was working from a a research perspective looking at in early Mm. stage development so I got to experience a big pharma company but in a research setting I was working in part of their drug development pipeline so things asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder so it was a really exciting time oh just fabulous people Absolutely amazing. And you can move on from roles and you can move on from places, but you carry the great people with your tribe. Mm. And there are still people from there that, you know, I, I keep in touch on my company's advisory board because they've supported me throughout my career. They're fabulous people. Fabulous. You've got to keep that tribe around you. Yeah. It's not Mrs. McCormack, is it? Oh, no. <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's not. Whenever I do get back to see my mum again, maybe I should try and find out where she is. I think you should. Catch up with her for a couple. She'd, she'd love should, it. Should, um, I? Yeah. There's a place on the board for you now. <laughs> with Pfizer, I noticed you were doing some work in like a multitude of early phase stuff. And I was going to ask you along the lines of how things changed from... 20 years ago when you started in the industry as to now and in, but I suppose you're in different positions hmm. but specifically on COPD and asthma was it respiratory disease or therapeutic area as a whole did you get any insights into lung function and how diseases might disrupt things like that I'm referencing COVID-19 obviously hmm. 
Yeah, well, so I, I worked a lot in diseases for the lung when I was at Pfizer. And then when I, I moved, mm. I was headhunted to go to, to GSK. So I eventually did end up there after them sponsoring my PhD. I worked a lot on lung diseases, so developing new medicines for lung diseases, as well as HIV and cancer and you know various rare diseases, etc. So it was a much broader brush. But in terms of how the industry's changed in the last 20 years, I mean, it takes a long time to develop new medicines. It takes maybe 15 to 20 years to get from discovering a molecule that might help treat a disease all the way through to getting it to market. And you'll start off with a list of 10, 15,000 molecules and only one of them will make it to market in that time. And it costs at least £2 billion pounds to get it from start to end. Very few of them make their money back. So it's a very expensive game. It's a very expensive industry. It's a very risky industry, as in, you know, if you're an investor, risky place to, to kind of put your money. But we can't just go, oh, do you know what? Costs a lot to make medicines. It's really hard. So we'll just close everything up. And, you know, you've got some medicines for cancer. You've got some medicines for HIV. You've got some vaccines that we've made pretty quickly. All the best for those. No, there are still a load of diseases out there that either don't have medicines or don't have medicines that are very effective. So we've still got lots to do. It's a very exciting time, actually, to be in the industry. Over the last kind of 10 to 15 years, because it takes a long time to make medicines and because it's very expensive to make medicines, because you've got to show that they're safe and you've got to show that they work in very large clinical trials and it all costs money, a lot of companies are they're streamlining, so they're closing sites, they're reducing the number of people that work there. But that work still needs to be done. So just because they're not doing it inside, it means that companies like mine, we make early stage drug products. So we make products that will then go into clinical trials. That means that all of the jobs and the most growth is actually in those outsourced companies. It's a really, really interesting time for the industry. One, because of the growth that there is in those outsourced companies, but actually mostly because the eyes of the world are upon us. So everybody's interested in a good or a bad way about what the pharmaceutical industry is doing. Up until a couple of years ago, we were the second most hated industry in the world after oil and gas. People are like, oh, they're just there to make money. They're not interested in making people better. You think of the oil and the gas industry. They're digging holes in the earth, plugging out oil, spilling out all over the place, killing wildlife, all for a profit. So it's unfathomable to me that an industry that's here to make medicines, people healthier and live longer and hopefully you know, have a better quality of life, have that much hatred. But at the minute, the eyes of the world are upon us. I say we, we collectively, I I didn't play a part in this, but the industry has developed a vaccine and got that out to patients within a year of it being needed. And I don't think we should let this whole crisis go to waste. I'm really hoping that not only does this gain enthusiasm and interest in what we do as an industry, and therefore there's more investment in it, so there's more jobs, it's better for the UK, it's better for how quickly medicines can be developed, but also that it inspires and engages young people. You know, Whitney Houston's absolutely right. The children are our future. We've got to inspire them and make them really want to get into this industry. So whether it's seeing scientists talking on the telly, watching the Royal Institution Christmas lectures, 
seeing me doing some experiments on the telly to show how medicine works, if that gets them engaged and wanting to know more about science and they end up in the chemical industry, in the food industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, they end up applying the trade in the science, that's fine with me. Fabulous. Love that. I think there must be some positives to take out of COVID, whether medicines get developed more quickly or not. Obviously, safety in some people's eyes is still a question. But yeah, I've not really thought about it in such a positive light myself. I mean, I've worked in pharma recruitment and in the industry as a data manager for 15 years. And I didn't ever see it as kind of like a bad thing. I think there are some commercially driven interests from some companies within it. But overall, there's so many good people and you're just like... They're overriding or overarching by a huge majority is of total positivity. As scientists, we're taught to speak in quite convoluted language. You use a lot of jargon. We talk about the features of something rather than the benefits. And we don't help ourselves because we're talking in very technical language. So it's not meaningful to them. You know, what is epigenetics? What is mRNA. You know, once you start to talk in jargon and complex things, and people would naturally shut down. We need to make our messaging memorable, really, and engage people where we can. So I always encourage folk when I'm, you know, if I'm giving a talk, and hopefully I did that to you, with your colleague, which kind of made what I was saying memorable, is, you know, I encourage people when they say, oh, what do you do? You know, talk to people at a bus stop about what you do, but do it in a very succinct fashion. Talk to your mum, talk to the kids at school. You never know. You never know who it's going to resonate with and what interest that is kind of raise. Then you went on to work for a company in Oxford as director of pharmaceutical development and then head of research and development. It sounds like you're moving up the seniority train quite here. I haven't asked you about your work with nanoscientium, is it? Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah. Nanotechnologies. Mm. Sounds fascinating. Like fast tracking nanotechnologies. Is it actually something that can be of use to us in society in the near future? Or is it already? And I don't know it. Well, absolutely. So nano is just small. So it's any sort of That's delivery system or technology that's really, really small. So the mRNA vaccines will be in something that's really yeah. small. That's probably quite a simple example of there nanotechnology. You go. <laughs> Strips, the lateral flow tests, that's nanotechnology. They'll have nanoparticles in there. That coloured line shows you where the nanoparticles have bound to tell you whether you have COVID or not. So it's out there already, and there's much more sophisticated ways to use it than that, but it is out in everyday use in everybody's kitchen at the minute, if you can get hold of lateral flow tests. Yeah, like literally in my bedroom. I've got the three ones early on, um, and I've had to use about three. They've all been negative, thank goodness. So, yeah, I've been pretty lucky. But, yeah, Yeah. that's a real-life example of nanotechnology literally in everyday use right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, going, wanna... going to Oxford, so Oxford, yeah. it's a virtual company. So I've been in Pfizer nice. and GSK, 100 and something thousand people. I don't like to let the grass grow for too long. I think I love to just get on and try new challenges. So when I went to Oxford Pharma Science and my role was to turn the company from a food supplements a nutraceuticals business into a pharmaceuticals business, which we managed. Okay. Yeah, let me get 
two products into clinical trials. Fabulous. From then on, you know, there was only one way I could go if I was down to four people in an organisation. It was to start up on my own. So I started Nanoscientium as a as an entrepreneur and then Agility Life Sciences. Nine and a half years ago. Oh, my. Okay. Ten years in August. It will be. I on my own just to do some consulting because I thought, well, I've, I've got a decent technical skill set, got a good kind of commercial skills, which could be put to good use by kind of consulting to, to various other companies. I looked into my tribe and said, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you reckon? Do you know anybody who needs this? And uh, it's amazing when you kind of put that out into the world and you talk to people that you trust. I started off virtual and then during the pandemic decided to have space. We've tripled our lab space in less than 18 months. It's going fantastically. What were your fears putting off agility? Like trying to start something new that they were a bit worried about, even starting the mixed bag was like, okay, just take it in very small steps this is what you need to do for this. This is what you need to do for this. And then just start. Like my fears were, is anyone going to like it? Which I counteracted with, I don't care. I'm doing this because I want to. Is anyone going to come on? And every person that I've asked has been like pretty receptive to coming on and just trusting myself a little bit. I mean, it's completely different to starting a business, but what fears did you have and how did you overcome them? I think there's always the fear of, oh, what if we don't make any money? But my wife was fantastic. She was really supportive. And I was going for a, from a very well-paid exec role to potentially nothing. And she said, yep, go for it and give it a year. And I think you've got to give yourself a decent amount of time and properly throw yourself into it. I was prepared to not make any money for a year. So have enough kind of in the bank to go, right, if, we, if I don't make any money for a year, then we'll be all right, you know, we will afford to eat, we can keep a roof over our heads and it, yeah. will, it will be fine. The real kind of catalyst for me, I try to do this and I encourage other people to do it anytime they're kind of at a quandary or a crossroad, is the five-year forward. Cast yourself five years into the future and if you think, if I don't do this, I will regret it, then you've just got to do it. You've just got to make that leap and make it happen. So I think the fear of regretting something is worse than the fear of failing. Love it. Looking back, would there be anything that you would change specifically or would you just have made the same mistakes and been where you are today because of that? And I think some people are a little bit afraid of not necessarily making mistakes, but registering the mistake as a failure and therefore a complete failure rather than a hold on, we're not doing this right. We might need to modify a few things. You know you've been through that sort of loop of I'm not doing this right, correct it, correct it. Okay, we're back in a really good space. I mean, from the outside, it probably looks like it goes smoothly, but it, you know, it hardly mm. ever goes to plan. Well, I try to do this as often as I can, is kind of pause and reflect. And yeah, I encourage my team, you know, pause, reflect and celebrate success is one mm. thing. So when things go right or go really well, we don't just go, oh, excellent. That was good <laughs> and move on because the world is on fire. We need to celebrate as much as we can. So we need to actively pause, reflect and celebrate success. But also when things don't go to plan, 
Like, what could we have done? When could we have seen this coming? What could we have done differently? And are we going to do this again in the future? Or is it like, have mm. we learned from this so that we know what we're going to do? And yes, we will do this thing again in the future. Or have we learned that that's not for us? We're just not doing it. Mm. People talk a lot about, you know, resilience and building your resilience, and especially in a pandemic. And actually, as a CEO, you've got to be resilient. But resilience isn't just about having armour. I don't think it's lucky. I think it's plucky. You know, having that bravery and having that yeah. armour to just keep going. Part yeah. of resilience is, is knowing when to stop. It's the Kenny Rogers principle. Of, no, you've <laughs> got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when to walk <laughs> away and know when to run. So, you know, resilience isn't about you just keep going, just keep being belligerent. No, at some point you can go, do you know what? No, let's stop this. Yeah. Let's not not do this. And I saw a brilliant article. In fact, one of my tribe, one of my mentors sent to me a few days ago about people having these New Year's resolutions of, I will do this, I will do this. It was on, I won't do this. And it was on a don't do list. And I thought, that's fantastic. Um, the author, she, she'd written about the things that she's definitely not going to do. So she's not going to do speeches anymore. She's not going to work for free. I thought, that's brilliant. Fabulous. Hmm. So it's, I think it's almost more important to define the things that you're not going to do rather than the things that you are. We talked about earlier about me being a footballer. And if you can see this on the screen, you probably see some of the football stuff behind me. I'm a defender, so sweeper by trade. But sweeper? The back. Sweeper, yeah. Not heard that, right, not heard that right term in a long time. So <laughs> to how, how old I am. Yeah. For li- all the listeners out here, she's, um, she's chasing Sorry. down attackers and chasing you know, everything. Yeah. scything them down. <laughs> Absolutely. A war wants to show for it. Yeah. So, and it was, it's from about Belfast. <laughs> Is that going to be the title of this podcast? It's, it's, it's <laughs> a new title, Claire. It's the oh new title. God. It's just come to oh me. You know, I've just realised who I'm interviewing here. <laughs> so the resilience piece and saying no, I spent a lot of time in my football career chasing every ball. And when you're in your career, you're, you're a senior level, especially when you're a CEO, you can't chase every ball. You shouldn't chase every ball. You've got to be strategic. You've got to be tactical. Yeah. So I think I'm much better tactically than I am technically. Technically, I'm pretty good, but tactically, I'm always thinking two steps ahead. So reading the game and thinking about, right, if that happens, what's going to happen next? If this doesn't happen, how are we going to get over that? It helped a lot in the pandemic when we couldn't get materials in to make a medicine. Uh, you know, we were trying to get stuff made in India or China and there were delays because there were lockdown in various places, was having the tactics and the plans in place to go, okay, so if that doesn't happen, this is what we're going to do to mitigate that risk. <laughs> so my team caught paranoia. I think it's tactics and reading the game. That worked really well. But the resilience piece, you don't have to chase every ball. You can go, nope, I'm not doing that one. These are the things we're focusing on. This is how we're going to play the game. Fabulous. As CEO, obviously, you started the company. It was just you or the co-founders. What challenge do you expect to face that you can share? I think the most important thing in any company is the people. That's the biggest asset. I mean, hire great people, give them an environment in which they can succeed and let them do their job and support them along the way to make sure that they continue to have that environment in which they can succeed. And I think that during the pandemic, we've all felt it. So we've all Mm. been going up and down our stress curves. And understanding people 
again, it's the football thing about trying to get the best out of people, not the most out of them. And, you know, when their heads go down, how do you get their heads up? I use my football and skills every day in my business life. You know, massive believer that skills for sport aren't just skills for sport, the skills for life and for leadership. I think we're probably going to come on to talk a bit more about supporting women's football. But in terms of my team, I think pulling together to recognise and me as a leader going, I am struggling. I'm not having a great day. So I'm just going to take a couple of hours off. I'll be back later on. I just need to go and walk the dogs and clear my head for a bit. Then I'll be back. If you need me, do ring me or you know send me a message on WhatsApp. But I think as leaders, it's really important for us to be open, to be transparent, to be authentic and not have this persona of the armour and well, it's not tangible, we're imperishable and we're, we're superhuman. I do have Wonder Woman shoes behind me and I do have a Wonder Woman picture over there, but it doesn't mean that I'm <laughs> Wonder Woman. You know, I think if we're struggling, then it opens the door for our teams to go, do you know what? I'm not having a great time either. I've got my little one at home. The nursery's closed. Mm. She's got chicken pox got covid i'm struggling with this project and i need some support and i think that the pandemic has thrown up challenges that we would never have seen before i think what it has really highlighted is the important things about what we do i mean we're involved in making medicines i think that's really important i'm thinking the world thinks it's really important of course i think it's really important because it's my business and it's something i'm really passionate about but the most important things are people and purpose And those organisations and the people that focus on their people and the purpose of their organisation are the ones that have done well. Nobody gives a monkeys about products, about selling stuff, about profits. It doesn't engage people. They're sick of it. And I think that you might have seen this from a recruitment perspective. So many people have decided that, you know what, they don't want to do this job forever. They want to go off and do something that they're passionate about that is purposeful for them, is personal to them and brilliant. I want to see more of that. I mean, from the start, I've said 10% of everybody's time can be spent on something that is purposeful or personal to them. So we've got folks that are helping Citizens Advice Bureau or helping out with cancer charities or school governor or continuing their education. It's not just about going to work every day, having that daily grind going home, getting up the next morning and doing it again. We've got to recognise that our people are very, very important and our purpose is really important and we need to look after people. There was a guy on the radio yesterday. I forget his name. It was Johan something, but he was fly. You know that feeling when you are so focused will distract you, not noise, not anything... It very, very rarely, rarely happens. Manage to get into the flow and not get distracted. That's a huge purpose. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because it's like people are doing jobs that don't really get them into that state. To get into that state and do a job that you're that you're really passionate about. Like all of your choices, Claire, have been to do things incredibly passionate about anyway, and it, you get into that flow quite easily. It is difficult for some people to get in there. I think the advice we're both trying to give is, you know, do genuinely something you actually like doing. It might not be your favourite job in the world. I'm very fortunate that throughout my career I've chosen companies that I've managed to get both. If you're wondering, you know, well, what if I'm not in a job that I don't want to 
it's something you can do and you can find your flow. And once you find that flow every day, okay, money is important to the majority of people who don't have any, but a lot of the richest people, they do it because they absolutely love the job. I think it sounds like you've got it. I think I am probably in a very fortunate position, but again, it's not by luck. I think it is about being plucky. You've got to be brave. You've got to make those Mm. choices. You won't always get them right, but surround yourself with people who will challenge you, who will support you when you're down and who will challenge you when you are making those difficult decisions and Mm. help to steer you along the way. I'm not one of those uber rich people and that's fine with me and I don't know if that ever will be the case you know we donate it was two percent I think we're now at two and a half percent of our revenues every year to causes that we are passionate about yep so as part of that in 2020 I set up a girls and football teams grants scheme so gift grants and for that we've got 33 teams are in the UK that we sponsor at the moment so the the team's as the name suggests, it has to be a girls team or a women's team. And they'll get £500 to spend on kit, equipment, coaching, refereeing. I really don't mind what it's for. And really, for me, it's about getting girls into sport, keeping them in sport and helping them to kind of get that camaraderie. There's nothing quite like the camaraderie you've got when you're mm. playing football. I mean, I still, still in contact with my old St Andrews football girls. You know, the skills that you'd learn, you know, if you can do a hundred keepy uppies in various flicks and you end up being, they end up being Lucy Bronze or Steph. Like Lennon, or, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then brilliant. But if not, helps them with their confidence, their teamwork and their tactical skills, thinking about, mm. you know, how they can look up from the ball and think about what to, to do next. It gives them those skills for life and for leadership then great. You know, girls are dropping out of sport. I think it used to be at 14 years old and now it's 12. It's terrifying. So we've got to keep girls in sport. Yeah, 33 teams we sponsor at the minute. We haven't got any in Scotland yet. So if there's anybody listening in Scotland, drop me a line. Let's get them in. Yeah, get them in. But as well as that, you know, everyone within my team will pick a charity that they want us to donate to and we do donations. To my That's awesome. Once for my birthday and once for Christmas. When's your birthday? June. Oh, right in the middle of the year. Fab. Yep. Just talking about leadership and the captaincy of the team that you mentioned earlier that you feel like your CEO was a captain of a business. Yeah, Do you think you're viewed any differently being a woman, founder, CEO on the board? Have you noticed anything that's happened that shouldn't have past or present? So, yeah, for me, CEO stands for captain, extrovert, optimist probably in that order and be a captain is one of our behaviors one of our key behaviors it's not about leading it's about getting people going keeping them going keeping the momentum so it's not just about leadership i'm the least important person in the organization but in terms of how i think i'm viewed quite often i think i'm still the only woman in the the room i'm not the youngest person in the room i used to be the only woman in the room i'm the youngest person in the room i'm a bit long in the tooth now I'm fine with that because when I'm there, I'm probably in my Wonder Woman shoes or in something that I feel (laughs) very, very confident in. So I have that persona. I can hold my own. I'm happy to speak out 
and all will remember me. Of course, it, it does put an onus upon me to say the right things and make the right challenges. I don't always get it right, but that's fine. It means that people will remember me, the hair or the shoes, they might remember, remember my name. But also, if I'm the only one in the room, you can guarantee that if you invite me there, then I'm holding that door open and I'm bringing a football team's worth of women with me. You know, it's not just me. I will create space for other people to move into. So mm. I'm not here on my own. I'm here to bring along with me. I do want to talk about specifically women in science and come on to that in a second. I just wanted to briefly talk because you've got quite a unique role in, in the fact that you are working with some, I imagine, some pretty cutting edge companies in the pharma sector. And you mentioned, obviously, the nanotechnology, and I should have maybe thought about the fact that it's been used every day in COVID. Do you see any medicines becoming particularly important five or 10 years? Do you think the future medicines that are coming, and is the pharma manufacturing sector ready? I mean, are we looking in better shape in terms of being able to bring a product through from bench to bed in a quicker time frame, or does it still need to be with the kind of sort of 10, 15, 20 years time sequencing for the development of any medicine, can we prepare for more medicines being able to be produced a lot more quickly and more personalised? More quickly. I certainly hope so. And I think that there'll be pressure from the public, from patients and from payers and investors because, you know, throughout the pandemic, vaccines develop very quickly. But also I work with a lot of early stage companies who have still held their feet to the fire. So those milestones haven't moved. They've had to do things quickly. Really? So I'm hoping that this will mean that we hopefully don't have to go as fast as making things very, very rapidly because there's a desperate need for them. I'm hoping that we can make medicines more quickly. We'll still have yeah. to show that they're safe and that they work. But can we do things more quickly? Can we make things more personalised? So personalised medicine has kind of been on the horizon. So yes, absolutely. And medicines for rare diseases, they're made more quickly anyway because the clinical trials are smaller, fewer patients, and therefore it's quicker and there's a um, quicker regulatory process or approval process to get those drugs onto the market. Will that mean that it's cheaper to make them? Not in the short term, but hopefully in the long term. What's kind of the future and the UK setup? Well, we'll be having booster vaccinations or vaccinations for various different COVID for probably a few years to come. But the way to make new vaccines is pretty quick. You know, they can sequence a new variant very quickly and then make that within, I think it's 100 days. I think Theresa Lamb talked about that, one of the Royal Institution Christmas lectures. Yeah, so they can do that really quickly. The Moderna vaccine, RNA in it, so messenger RNA. And what that does is it tells your cells to make the protein that is on the key proteins that's on COVID. And then that primes the immune system and messenger RNA for cancer vaccines as well. So I think well, it's not there yet, but I think the next thing is looking at vaccines for other diseases. The other medicines that are life-changing are cell therapies and gene therapies. So very rare diseases which are genetically linked as gene therapies. There's a, a cell and gene therapy hub in Stevenage. It's the biggest cell and gene therapy hub in Europe and it's the second biggest cell and gene therapy hub in the world. So the UK is leading in cell and gene therapy. 
Do you think there'll be a time that we can take a vaccine to prevent us from getting cancer? To prevent us from getting cancer? Well, the mRNA vaccines possibly could. You would need some diagnostic or predictive tests to say, look, it is a cancer or you're going to get cancer in your lifetime, therefore take this. There's a lot of companies invested in sort of Thermo Fisher Scientific, I've noticed, that are doing quite a lot of early phase diagnostic stuff. So it's coming together. A lot of people might see this as sinister and a profit generating. It's kind of like profit is a byproduct from it, unfortunately, from good science and innovation. Sometimes they're commercialized so they can actually produce them and make the people who make them astonishingly rich. Some people see it as extremely sinister, but I think it's just a byproduct of research and work and ideas that people are having that get turned into brilliant innovations and eventually they're commercialized. If anything, it's maybe capitalism. Yeah. The research doesn't pay for itself. Development of those products don't pay for itself. They've got to make money. And let's be clear, like business invests in R and D and that's the way things are developed. It's not government led programs that do this it's people who have incentives to do it so no, yeah. interestingly um, I mean, in, uh, vaccines so there's money invested in vaccines for i don't know maybe the past yeah years the government is one of the very few that was putting money in it i help them to assess you know what projects should get money and you know over the last few years there's been very little money's gone out to vaccines but one of those did invest a few million in vaccines a couple of years ago and that was for diseases as they were talking about Ebola or Zika virus or things that you've never heard of or disease X, the thing yeah. in the future that we should all be worried about, but nobody's putting any money in. And the money that went into that went to the fucking Imperial College and the folk at Oxford who've been involved in making the coronavirus vaccines. So thankfully... You know, there was a very small amount of money. There was, you know, there was only a couple of million that was spread amongst, you know, five or six different projects. But that was the foundation of the vaccines that you see at the moment. Finally, we can just ask a couple of questions. I think it's really important. You being in a senior position and being an advocate in general for women in science anyway, what opportunities do we have to get more women in science from a younger age hopefully loads and i think that the old adage of if you can't see it you can't be it and i think that's true so the more women that girls see doing science or talking about science i mean it's phenomenal that professor dame sarah gilbert has quite rightfully got so much praise. She got a standing ovation at Wimbledon. I cried watching it on the telly because it's phenomenal what she has achieved. But it shows young girls that they can do that. And that's, you know, one of the reasons, I mean, I know Sarah Gilbert, that I've done a few bits on TV because, you know, an Egypt like me with a ridiculous accent and more ridiculous hair can go on the telly and talk about science. And, you know, people enjoy it because they see me pointing at liquids that I've made change colour or froth up over the top and things explode. That's a coffee. They don't, <laughs> they don't always have to explode. But, you know, if they can see that and they can engage with it, then hopefully it spurs on a bit of interest. So I encourage, you know, if we've got any women who are scientists and you get an opportunity to talk 
about science anywhere or go and make those opportunities yourself. Don't wait to be asked. We hear a lot about imposter syndrome. We hardly ever hear about tiara syndrome. So that's when you're waiting to be asked to do something, waiting to be given something. Don't wait for the tiara. Go and offer to speak. Offer to speak at a school. Offer to speak at a university. Do a little video or post it on YouTube or post it on LinkedIn or something like that, you know, doing science with some kids. Do it. It's fun. You get covered in gunge and ridiculous. But yeah, why not? I, I think there's a huge opportunity. You know, there's more girls that start university science courses and then they just drop off. We need to keep them there. We need to give them confidence, I think. From the beginning, I think if more girls had confidence or were told at least that they should be confident from an earlier age, I think it would improve things. I think there's an underlying internal confidence, usually in men because of different hormones or whatever, and it's really misplaced. I mean, really misplaced. And my my course at university was at least 50-50 girls and boys. mm -hmm. And it really was like, oh my God, I'm I'm living in the future here. It's 2001, you know, felt great. Yeah, but I think diversity like charity begins at home. I said earlier, my daughter's five and Mm -hmm. she she just started school this year. And she's already come home and told me that boys in her class have told her she can't do something because she's a girl. Now, there is a high risk that I'll end up fighting one of the parents in the uh, school playground as a result of this. But, I mean, it's ludicrous. Boys are told they can do everything. And, you know, it's the blue and the pink nonsense. There's the unicorns and rainbows and action figures and Lego. Now, my daughter is into unicorns and rainbows and Lego and football and everything because older you can do, you can do anything, anything, anything that you like in the world, in the world, in the world. You make it a song, they'll remember it. She can do anything she like. I mean, where are these kids getting it from? But their parents or their grandparents, they're hearing this. So we need to stop that. I don't have the answers. But since I heard mm. that, I've started coaching the kids at the primary school and football. So it's girls and boys. So they can then see girls can play football. I've said that I will come in and do some science in the school with them. So girls can do science. Why not? I think it's fabulous. I think you should really do that. You're the kind of character who is an inspiration, boys and girls. You really should do that, Claire. I think you come across with so much passion that you should do that a lot if you can. Amongst, you know, being a mother and running your own company and stuff, you know, empowerment of young girls is so important, particularly in school, to give them role models. And seeing is believing. I think, you know, we say it so much. We've heard it with racial inequality as well, but in terms of gender inequality, it's been there far longer as well, I think. I always ask everyone this question to wrap it up, and it can be personal, it can be professional, it can be whatever you like, but what advice would you give to your younger self? Mm. What other people think of you is none of your business. What other people think of you isn't any of your business. It's none of, it's none of your business. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. It's like what you were saying earlier, starting your own business and yeah. oh, what will people think? Yeah. Will they not like it? And starting your podcast, will people listen? Will they not like it? It's none of your business. It doesn't matter, does it? You're brave enough to do it. Bloody well do it. Yeah. Where's the encouragement? And I have got encouragement. Yeah. 
and, and they might be thinking, don't, you know, yeah, don't. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> yeah. not good for this. <laughs> don't sing on a podcast. Uh, yeah, don't sing on a podcast. In, I didn't break yeah. into the John Barnes rap. No, we're fine. We're fine. We'll, we'll do that as a Christmas special. Um, <laughs> I like that advice, though. Whatever people say about you or think is none of your business because, yeah, it's in there. And that's good. I think we live in a social media world where anything can be posted and you don't want to be shamed because I think that's the ultimate negative emotion, isn't it, for anyone? You don't want to be shamed, but yeah. just roll with it. Do things with good intentions and people don't like it, then they're not your people. Stuff them. Move on. I think that's a brilliant note to end it on, Claire. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. It's been fabulous.